you are upstairs and I am downstairs. You've got a dog. I've got a dog. The cat will show up eventually. We are one happy podcasting family right now. Hello, makers. Welcome to our studio, a brand new branch of the Making Conversation podcast, where we chat all about making, the app and the act. I'm Jen, head of marketing here at Making. My pronouns are she, her, and my making app username is Knit Pearl. So I know I say this like almost every episode, but today's guest is one of my most favorite humans. He is very smart, a really talented musician and artist. My animals love him very much, and he is very handsome. He also happens to be my partner. Hello, Lars Garvey Lang Peterson. It's just one correction. There are animals, and they love us I'm both sorry. Equally. I know. I know. I just, I was, it was like part of the intro. If I said our animals love him, people That's would fair. know that I was talking about my partner right away. I'm just trying to keep the mystery alive. You know what I mean? I, I just want to let everyone know there, there are animals, except for Bella, which is your cat. I mean, you have a tattoo of her on your arm. Yes, I do. She's, I, yes, I guess I have to claim ownership. I know who you are, clearly, but maybe some people who are listening do not. So do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? I do. Otherwise, it would just be an awkward, silent moment. My name's Lars Lang-Peterson. My pronouns are he, him. My making username, which is a shout out to the brand mascot. It's mental for lentil. The four is a number four to show the Mm -hmm. kids that I'm still hip and still got it. We are both in the city of Seattle. I don't know how long I have been a maker. A good period of my life. I guess it really depends on how we're defining it. I always had some curiosity with art and other stuff, but really wasn't pursuing that too much until probably, I guess, the pandemic. I guess I started really funneling a lot of stuff into art I've done some cool cross-stitching with Quaylen. If we're talking about music, we're coming up on 30 years of being a maker. I've been in a number of musical projects. The one I'm working on most these days is a solo project called Despatches, spelled in the traditional British style. I uh, got a couple albums out, need to get some stuff up on Spotify, but my band camp is pretty stocked at the moment. Well, you also made the music for this podcast. Yeah, I did the opening music for this here podcast. And when I'm not making, I'm usually snuggling one or three animals. And recently, I I wasn't watching a lot of horror movies during the pandemic. So the last six months or so, I've been catching up on years and years of, of quality horror films. I am not always sitting and watching these horror movies with you. Mm. Has there been one that you're like, ooh, that was surprising? History of the Occult. I believe it's an Argentinian film. I believe, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that it was the highest rated horror movie on Letterboxd for 2022, for anybody who cares about that stuff. Absolutely incredible film. There's not a lot of jump scares there's not a lot of gore anything like that it is more of a twilight zone what the hell is going on that deals with like the occult it's wonderfully fascinating um and i think mostly because it's not really a a horror movie it's a like incredibly smart movie with horror element now all of the horror movie fans have something to do after listening to this podcast What sparked this whole conversation that we have been having outside of this podcast and then, of course, led to inspiring this discussion on today's episode is an Instagram post of a tweet that we saw a few weeks ago, actually. The author of the tweet is at S-J-S-I-N-D-U. We don't need AI to make art. We need AI to write emails and clean the house and deliver the groceries so humans can make more art. Lars, you want to read the one that you shared the other day? The uh, person who wrote this, their Twitter handle is Carl, with a K, Remarks. Very funny. Good Mm. shout out to Carl Marx. Humans doing the hard jobs on minimum wage while the robots write poetry and paint is not the future I wanted. We are going to talk about AI and art. 
if you didn't yes. guess already. So as creatives, Lars and I have found ourselves in some really interesting conversations about what AI has evolved into and where it can go. I thought it would be interesting to bring some of that to our little art making podcast. So we're all on the same playing field right out of the gate from Wikipedia. Artificial intelligence, AI, is intelligence, perceiving, synthesizing, and inferring information demonstrated by machines as opposed to intelligence displayed by humans or by other animals. Example tasks in which this is done include speech recognition, computer vision, translation between natural languages, as well as other mappings of inputs. AI applications include advanced web search engines like Google Search, recommendation systems used by YouTube, Amazon, and Netflix, understanding human speech such as Siri and the A1 that I can't say because she's listening in the corner and will go off. Also, self-driving cars, generative or creative tools such as chat gpt and ai art which is what we will be focusing on today we are creatives that appreciate how technology can assist in creativity possibly spark something that maybe you didn't think about before or even just free up more time to create like the post that we were talking about earlier referred to we are not engineers that create ai so i just wanted to make that very clear <laughs> so before we dive into a conversation about AI and art, let's talk about what was inspiring to us in the making app this week. Elizabeth Kerr does incredible stoneware. There's this incredible stoneware jug. It just the level of detail. I'm always very jealous of people that create like ceramics and stoneware and just I love when you're done there's something you can like pick up and like feel. We love Elizabeth's art. She has been a part of the making app for a while. And Ashley actually has one of her pieces. And I saw um, it in real life. And it's even more beautiful in person. I am not surprised. And now I'm jealous of <laughs> Ashley. Another one that I really liked was a crochet ghost face. Speaking of horror films, Scream 6 is great. You should watch it. But Daniel Lopez, or as you might know them, Owl Post 731 on the making app. Really awesome ghost face crochet. I love that this is Danielle's first post in the app too. What a really? shout out. Yeah. Oh, dope. All right. Awesome. That's... Keeps sharing your work, Danielle. Jen Smith, another Jen, another talented Jen, put up an incredible set of earrings I really like. Jen Ann Handmade. She makes these wall vases that are super rad. And I was going to actually look to see what colors she had to get one for our house, maybe. <laughs> yes. Damn. I've liked it. I've liked it on the making app. I want that to be known by people. But yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Great photographer, too. It's one thing to do really cool art, but uh, I definitely like the way that Jen has framed a lot of these. You're doing all <laughs> Jen's proud. But yeah, I mean, and honestly, like it was hard to pick. I was scrolling through a bunch of stuff. There's just great art. A lot of the styles of making aren't stuff that I'm super familiar with or anything, but it's just really cool to see what people are working on. I love seeing stuff in progress as well as stuff that is totally done. I love when people are excited about yarn before it's become anything because the, the, there's a whole beautiful makership that comes into making yarn and good yarn. I like being able to scroll through and know that I'm seeing stuff in chronological order. It's always the stuff I'm like, that's stuff I would never be able to make myself like stoneware and earrings and wall vases and awesome crochet and ghost vases. I feel like we could go we could go do a pottery class together. I feel like that maybe would be a fun date. I am the supportive partner in that trend that's going around going, do you really need another? Okay. I'm fine. not the per I <laughs> I'm barely good enough at the hobbies I love doing that every time I even get mildly tempted, I have to have that very deep discussion with myself. We're going to buy it. We're going to leave it to the, uh, the incredible makers on making. One of the makers in the app that I am always enjoying whenever they post is Rusty Bourbon Vintage. A lot of what they do is very like 70s inspired and it's just really cool. It's lots of reclaimed textiles. We do love a good upcycle and rusty bourbon vintage. They're fantastic at it. And the other shout out that I wanted to give was in our classes. Mariah has put together a series of three 
sock knitting classes. So this is a series of classes designed as a choose your own adventure for socks. Each class will use the mini sock pattern for a quick and easy study of different sock knitting techniques. We will explore options for toe up, cuff down, and a variety of heels to choose from. The goal is to understand the different ways socks are constructed so you can find the best way that works for you. And I will say, as somebody who loves knitting socks, I highly recommend taking a class, not only with Mariah, because she is a very amazing instructor and just all around great human. However, knowing how you like to knit socks is really important because I know that some people out there are a little timid about starting and trying. I feel like every time that I have posted something, I somebody has said, my gosh, I'm so scared to knit socks. I feel like taking these classes would definitely help with your fear or any uncertainty. But knitting socks is like the best, especially during the summer when you want to continue knitting, but you don't want like a big bulky sweater sitting in your lap as you're going. So you just open up the making app, tap shop and tap classes and they are listed there. And thank you, Mariah, for always being an amazing partner with us and teaching on the learning platform. Let's talk about AI and art. So Lars, I know that you've had a journey through finding these platforms, utilizing them a little bit, playing around with them, and also being an artist outside of that as well with different mediums, painting and collage and digital art and everything. So kind of marrying everything together, tell us the story of kind of your journey through all of this. I think like a lot of people, we've seen all those articles and stuff where people are like, oh, I let chat GPT email my mom back uh, for a week to see if she noticed. And like, you know, I think when these tools come out, there is a, a completely understandable and natural curiosity. And so I was definitely, I think Dali 2 was my first introduction into sort of AI generated art. I think it was like my first impressions were sort of a mix of like, wow, I didn't think that could happen. And a lot of like, oh yeah, that's what I expected to see. Like a lot of, you know, it just looked like a, a photocopy or like a smush up of styles. I think the one that's been going around the internet recently is AI generated. Was it Harry Potter if Wes Anderson directed it or Lord of the Rings or something like that? Yeah, I think it was Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. You know, it's fun. And if that's all that AI art was being used for, my journey wouldn't have been quite as like complicated and complex. I've definitely used some AI gener generated elements in pieces I've done. I try to keep it in the sort of collage format. Like it's not the the sole focus of the piece or anything like mm -hmm. that. I've definitely used it to generate ideas. You know, I've talked to a few creative people who that's how they're using it. Um, instead of going down the rabbit hole for hours and sometimes days, depending on what medium they're using, they can type a couple of prompts into something like Midjourney or Dali. Those are the two I'm most familiar with. I'm sure there's others. I do like the idea of utilizing AI as a jumping off point for possibly sparking some creativity. There have been times where I come up with the topic that I'm going to talk about on this podcast and I'll jump into ChatGPT and enter it in and then just see what happens. And sometimes the stuff that it spits out, I go to research it and it's incorrect. So <laughs> that's another thing to remember when you are using ChatGPT. Check the work. But there's definitely been some things where I'm like asking questions and the answers are pretty interesting. And then I will take that basic tidbit of knowledge and go do a deep dive on it. And it sparks this really amazing journey through learning something new and being able to bring that to this podcast. So I do think that there is something about AI and like utilizing it as inspiration. I agree. Not to fast forward too much to the end of my journey. I write and I had a pretty interesting idea for sci-fi kind of isolation horror short story. And I really like detailed writing that isn't too detailed. And I realized to do that, like maybe actually having some photos, photos to work off of to be like, oh, okay, this is what this hallway looks like, or, oh, this is what this medical bay looks like. That was really fun. And I definitely got super carried away with it. And I think I have 30 or 40 images. I am not going to lie. Like some of those images were really cool. And I definitely use description things. I think I use Kubrick for a few to get sort of the 2001 sort of feel to it. 
I'm sure I use James Cameron or Ridley Scott to get sort of alien aliens feel to some of it. And it's really cool just to be able to put that out and know that it wasn't going anywhere further than my mid journey profile. I wasn't going to try to make money off of it. And at best, it was going to be sort of a like a storyboard for a story. Visual inspiration for what you're writing. That's uh -huh. very cool. What it also showed me was there were people I could have asked to do kind of stuff like that. I've done the chat GPT thing a few times. And honestly, I've been so like underwhelmed by some of it that I'm like, why didn't I just ask? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, why didn't yeah. I just ask a friend who knows, even just has a passing casual interest in the thing? And I think, I think that's where the limitations and also the why comes into it. I think if you have a very strong why, like I definitely know people who are still using AI generated art to give them like they have an idea and they can't quite put all the pieces together. And even if the AI isn't helping them, that's actually helpful. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I know I don't want it to look like this. And the problem with AI, the biggest problem that I think outside of the ramifications for people's jobs is that Pandora's box is opened. I don't mm -hmm. see it getting closed. And I'm yeah. not saying that gives me a guilt-free pass to just do whatever I want with AI-generated writing and AI-generated art. But I do think it does complicate the... Unfortunately, it's once the tool is out there, there is some gray area between don't use it, you are complicit in stealing writers or artists' jobs, and oh, absolutely use it because technology should be driving stuff forward. And there's a lot of honestly very good pro AI writing generation and art generation arguments, which is like small startups that aren't able to afford artists now have the ability to create the kind of art that they want for their product who may not be able to afford copywriters that are now able to get uh, it depends on how you feel about chat gpt's writing and writing style and <laughs> level of competency but you can get some you can at least get a good paragraph to edit and mm -hmm. say like oh i don't love the way it's describing this you know and and again i i think as anyone who's played around a little bit with ai some of it's surprisingly good I would say with ChatGPT, for sure, anything that I've received out of it, it's literally just a response to a question of something that, like, I then need to go research and yeah. do my own writing because I feel like if I were to do a whole entire podcast based on what ChatGPT spits out to me, people who have been listening to the last few episodes that I've done, they'd be like, is Jen okay? <laughs> oh, no, it just sounds so like void of any sort of human emotion or passion or anything like that. I feel like that's a, a point in the right direction for yes. us, not for the robot overlords. And this actually could take us into talking about our friend. Margaret Mitchell. I know somebody who was in the most 100 influential people of 2023 time magazine have you at least bragged a little bit that you were forbes woman of the month? oh no i haven't said anything i was just oh. i was i was featured in forbes you know yeah I she was woman of the month. jen finally has someone who's her equal in margaret oh, mitchell come on <laughs> i would not compare myself i mean margaret is one of the leading figures in ai ethics um mm -hmm. so that's we we have different smarts i will say yes but i mean you at least were both featured in major American publications for very, very different, very different reasons. reasons. Yeah, But it still doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paid attention to. Thanks, babe. <laughs> Margaret, incredibly, wonderfully, deeply smart person. So from the Time article of the 100 most influential people of 2023, it does state most AI discourse takes a distinctively utopian or dystopian view of the future. Margaret Mitchell, one of the leading figures in AI ethics, subscribes to a third camp that AI is not as powerful as many people claim and that talks of its hastening the end of the world actually, if perversely, helps the companies promoting it. In 2020, Mitchell co-authored an influential paper that argued AI's chat GPT are little more than high-powered autocomplete tools, which often result in the further entrenchment of societal inequality. So basically, Margaret was fired from Google along with the co-author of that paper 
in the fallout from the paper publication. Now, Margaret is the chief AI ethics scientist at Hugging Face, an open source AI platform. Here's what I appreciate about this is there are people who have the title of chief AI ethics scientist. (laughs) So I think that there is a world where AI can be used for good as long as the right people are running it. But then there's the opposite part of that, that, you know, you and I talk about a lot. How can anything like this be used in a manner that is ethical in a capitalistic society? There's going to need to be a lot more Margaret Mitchells in the world um, for me to feel deeply comfortable with AI. Honestly, sometimes when I'm doing my job, there was a really good AI email response tool, if there was a really good AI grants application tool, content management tool, there's sort of the joke meme I can never remember the entire source from, but it was like two people from ancient Greece, they time travel to 2023 and they're really curious and they have a great group of people showing them around the world and showing them like how much has changed since ancient Greece. And basically one of them turns and goes, this is incredible. You guys have must have so much time for grapes and poetry. And the people have to be like, oh no, uh, we all are still dealing, you know, we're dealing with 80 hour a week burnout. We're dealing with depression on levels we've never seen before. We're dealing with uh, job dissatisfaction, all of this across the board. And the Greeks are like, what the hell did you guys do? At what point did technology making your lives better just means that people had to work harder because of the technology, not Mm -hmm. work less because of the technology. Capitalism. Absolutely. (laughs) I remember my granddad telling me stories about what his nine to five life looked like in the seventies. You would get a letter typed out and it would get slapped into an envelope. And then the quickest way to get it across town was a courier. But if, if sometimes you just slap it in the mail And then you had to wait for it to get to the person and at least one day response, if not multiple days response. And and that's an email now. Mm -hmm. That's one email that takes probably too soon to write, especially if you're stressed out and too soon to respond to, especially if you're stressed out. At what point did stuff like email not make our lives easier? And then that's one of the few things that people are like saying, oh, chat GPT could really help with this. Because there's a, I believe there's a Gmail extension that will, it puts it in your drafts folder. But if you set it up, it's like, it will start a response for you. And you can mm-hmm. open up your drafts folder and see what chat GPT thinks. One of the podcasts that we both listened to, TBTL, Andrew was talking about how he responded to Luke with an email that was written by an AI writing tool. Mm-hmm. And he didn't tell him until they were recording and Andrew was like, Hey, that email that you got earlier from me, what did you think? And Luke was like, it was weirdly formal. Like it was Mm. just strange bringing it back to specifically AI and art, because I think that's what we can talk about today, you know, not being engineers or whatever, talking about it from a creative's perspective, whether it's writing or art, there is, There's a part of it that it's just, sure, technology improves, but at this point, it's like how much of that is very, like, obviously not human. I found a really interesting take from an article in Wired about Mm -hmm. AI and art. It's by Christoph Pelk, P-E-L-C. It's called AI Will Make Human Art More Valuable. And the big question in this article is, Will there be a society-wide change in taste? Meaning that there's this idea that we will always want things the same way that we want them now, like aesthetically with art, but we know that with technology, there will be a change in how we get there. So the article goes on to talk about um, what Christoph calls the William Morris effect. And from the morrissociety.org, William Morris was widely recognized as the leader of the arts and crafts movement. Uh, Morris advocated for the importance of craft, believing that art was the expression of pleasure in labor. Morris's passion for the arts of everyday life and abhorrence of Victorian industrial society led him to political activism. 
influenced by Marxism, anarchism, and revolutionary socialism. Morris co-founded the Socialist League, campaigned for workers' rights, and lectured widely on art, labor, and politics. So this is pointing to the fact that when Britain hit the peak of the Victorian Industrial Revolution, when most things could be made at excess in factories and quantities were at levels not seen before, Morris stepped in and was like, nope. And from the Wired article, they quickly found a receptive audience. Just as technology was bringing mass-produced goods within reach of the middle class, under the influence of Morris and his acolytes, elite tastes turned to block-printed floral wallpaper and furniture purposefully left unfinished, the better to hint at its handmade origins. By the end of the 19th century, arts and crafts interiors had become the dominant style in British middle-class homes. So what does this mean for like this new AI world? I think that's the thing is this um, revolt against Victorian industrial revolution. And maybe this is a good thing. Maybe I shouldn't underestimate this moment in history just because there's a lot of ugly stuff happening. But, you know, this sounded like it really, the mass produced goods, the ability to own certain items that were out of reach decades before the industrial revolution. But it does prescribe to a a little bit of Ludditism, like a little bit of a move away from the way that technology is shaping the progress of humanity. And I think we're seeing some of that. A lot of people are burnt out on Facebook, Instagram, burnt out on TikTok. Like, but that's people our age, and there's people half my age that spend most of their lives on TikTok and are are honestly yeah. creating some really cool stuff. And also there's Again, going back to the argument about AI art and AI generated copywriting helping small companies out, like the Victorian Industrial Revolution and a lot of you know similar economic moments in, in recent history have allowed people to have like stuff in their homes that was out of reach before. And do, does a uh, a sofa made on a assembly line are those going to last as long as a handmade couch? No, of course not. But the handmade couch mm-hmm. is 10 times the price. And again, it goes back to capitalism, right? Like, well, I think I think it goes back to what we were reading a little bit with Margaret's introduction in, in that top 100 people of 2023. I mean, AI is disrupting quote unquote comfortable lives. People who are making their lives through writing, people who are making their lives through graphic design and art are in a very, you know, obviously, I'm sure they don't feel that way. And I'm not trying to make light of it. They're doing that, do what you love sort of thing. And they're on a path too. they want to make more money. They want their art or writing to be better received and paid better for the creation of. And I think that's where a lot of the anxiety behind all of this comes from is that there's a bunch of articles online about like how to make the best mid journey prompt or the best dolly prompt or whatever AI generated thing. And it's, you can just read some of those and type in a bunch of stuff. And all of a sudden you have a bunch of great logos or a bunch of great backgrounds for ads or something. But there's people out there who are still probably paying off design school or art school that are like, mm-hmm. wait a second, this sucks. What mm-hmm. am I meant to do now? But here's the thing that I want to challenge with that real quick. From this article, they were talking about how 15 years ago, researchers at the University College London and the University of Copenhagen did a study and they put people in MRI machines and told them that some of the images they would see would be machine made and some would be human made. And guess which one was the winner? I'm going to guess humans. Ding, ding. You are correct. Like if we're talking about graphic design and marketing, which the study of art that was made by humans and art that was made by machine and the art that was made by humans overwhelmingly lit up these people's brains in the MRI. What does that do for consumers reacting to an AI generated maybe um, graphic for a company versus something that a human put together and went through rounds with, you know, the founders and the marketing for that startup, we'll just say. Is that going to change? And there's no, I don't think that we have an answer for it now, but it's its an interesting thought process of taking this study and applying it to that as well. And I do think that there is a human element that goes into creating this kind of art. Mm-hmm. And 
I feel like it's just so important and I hope that we don't lose grip on that as well. Maybe a few months ago or like right at the beginning of my journey, like looking into stuff like Dolly and mid journey, I was not terribly concerned about especially graphic design. But the thing is that there's been a real push for sort of really great minimalist logos, really great flat images. And unfortunately, that's the stuff that AI feasts on. And speaking of feasting on, we haven't even touched on the fact, something that our, our good friend Josh Foman pointed out, that the people that are feeding a lot of these images into the AI generating programs, these are people working at like minimum wage outside of this country in unregulated kind of ways. Like there's almost a sweatshop of aspects of the AI that I don't think enough people are talking about, which is who is feeding these images, who is feeding these styles of art, who is feeding all this stuff into the, the AI itself that then turns around and is able to generate these things. Do I expect that a certain number of human designers are going to be able to go take this as a challenge and start doing stuff that AI is just not capable of doing, especially since AI is working on art up until recently. It's, it's, you can do a really good fake hopper painting or something in mid journey. I did a Goya one the other day that I was a little surprised at how good it was. Were you entering those in to just see what it would look like yeah, just based on absolutely. this podcast conversation? Yeah. What AI is going to be really good at is replicating art from before. Mm -hmm. But that also might really shorten a like art movements now. If mm -hmm. there's only going to be a, a year or two before certain human art trends become replicable in AI generation software, that's all of a sudden that human art form is dead. There's also this part of like what you said about entering in the likeness. Like if I were to say create a dog in the style of Kyler Mart. And Kyler's a, a local Seattle artist and very, very talented. But the reason I'm saying Kyler Martz is because Kyler's still with us and <laughs> mm -hmm. is currently working hard to make money as an artist. And yes, yes, we can talk about Monet and all these other people, but I feel like it's different if you're taking somebody who is who has had success and has a name out there and is talented and you say that. And you receive something back from that. And then you utilize that to make money yourself. Where does that money or recognition go back to Kyler? That's where we're at this like standstill, right? Speaking of art or likeness, we listened to a 33 and a third podcast episode on our drive back from Palm Springs. And it's called Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique with Dante Ross. So this talks about, you guessed it, the BC Boys album in 1989, Paul's Boutique. They uh, dive into what it was like to sample music back then. They talk a lot about that. So at this point, the BC Boys were signed to Def Jam. Def Jam owed the band money but wouldn't pay them until they made another album. So the BC Boys ended up signing with Capitol Records, which is when Paul's Boutique happened. As they say in this 33 and a third episode, this album is a pivotal record in terms of sampling and hip hop, and they mm -hmm. call it a quote unquote ridiculous collage of music. And that's how many samples were used on this album. <laughs> yes, I think Paul's Boutique is also one of those albums. Uh, there's a couple else. There's, there's a De La Soul album, I think, is up there. I think there's a Public Enemy album that is also like running up there with the amount of samples. Uh, and in the late 80s, early 90s, making this album would have, you know, even getting everything cleared. And there's some wiggle room, I think, for fellow producers of like when a sample is no longer a sample, like when it's been processed and chopped up and changed so much. And then there's very obvious sampling. Back then, I think it cost under a million dollars to make to get all the samples cleared for Paul's Boutique. And I'm only aware of one lawsuit against the Dust Brothers and the Beastie Boys and Capitol Records for Paul's Boutique. Can you remind me, didn't they just do it and then they went back and apologized later? So they got everything cleared that they felt was a, that they felt was a absolute sample. Mm. And... Because Capitol Records, they know how other record labels would feel. Yeah, if. yeah. Okay. So 
the three people that were the Beastie Boys may not have had a very full idea of what the Dust Brothers were using when they were creating Paul's movie. Mm. And also, there's a little bit of a, that's not my job in there. You create this beat for us. You let Capitol Records know what you use to make this beat, and Capitol Records needs to make it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, the one lawsuit I'm aware of was that, you know, it turned out to be one of those companies that was just absolutely loved to litigate absolutely mm. love to find anything they had a, a they did have a case with two samples but i think they put six or eight samples forward and the judge dismissed all but two and one of them is very silly i think li- literally the beastie boys named a song after the what was said in the sample so it was very at that point that is a, a real failing of somebody to not get that sample if you're going to mm-hmm. name the song after something that appears in the sample Mm-hmm. Even if it is used for, I don't know, 1.5 seconds of a song. Do you know what the laws are? I mean, like, is it different now than it was back then with the Beastie Boys? More litigious now. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming that you wouldn't be able to pull, like, a sample of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, even if mm-hmm. it was one second without getting slapped with a lawsuit. Yeah, absolutely. If I want to choose anything from a Mariah Carey song... Honestly, if I want to use anything from like the Motown era, from jazz, you would really want to get that cleared. Yeah. Unless you are just living on the edge and just are hoping that the lawsuit will bring you enough publicity that will mean enough money is coming into your coffers. I also just want to throw out there, I have no idea why I went to Mariah Carey and a Christmas song. I I don't know where that came from. It's almost 70 degrees outside. What are we doing? (laughs) I guess, ironically parallel to some of the discussions we've been having obviously the use of samples and who was going to get slapped with a lawsuit has it's changed with the level of technology and the ability for people to probably scrape a lot of these songs for for stuff Mm -hmm. which is interesting because if if you're thinking about it in the way that we're talking about ai and art like yeah if you're going to get sued for using one second of mariah carey's all i want for christmas is you yeah why is it that people can put into these AI machines, make this in the styling of? Because a lot of those people, it's very clear who this yes. styling is, you know? That's the through line that we're talking about here, if you didn't pick that up. It's move fast, break things. I think you can look at Paul's Boutique and other albums that producers were, were going to use X number of samples and we're going to get a number less than X number cleared. It's move fast, break things. And I think in Mm -hmm. 89, it was probably a lot less scary to use. I believe the count, at least in the legal papers, is they think about 105 songs were sampled on Paul's Boutique. Mm. And to be fair, that they only got sued for six of those samples and only two went to actual trial. It shows that the Dust Brothers and Capitol Records most likely did it as right as they could. Yeah. With the one example of the song that was actually named after part of a bit of the sample, which is not great. And I will at least say that the lawsuit against the VC boys had the buy-in from the artists that was being sampled. There's this whole industry now that creates samples that won't cause copyright issues. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure mostly born out of a ton of lawsuits that started happening around samples. And there's this whole side industry now. Well, it's not even a side. It's a full industry of incredible musicians creating samples that are never going to have clearance issues, that you're never going to have copyright issues with. And most of them, basically the only like legally binding line is like, use this as much as you want on an indie label. If you're just using it in your own music, we don't give a shit. But if you get onto a major record label, here's an email. And we Mm -hmm. just want to be able to have a songwriting credit and the appropriate royalties based on songwriting credit. I know you use some of these as as an example. You use some of these and you just credit them on, you know, the song, correct? Absolutely. I did it once and I think it was MSXII. I wrote them and I was still pretty new to the sampling world. I've never... It wasn't until the pandemic that I even started messing around with samples and stuff. And there's a whole probably hours long story about me falling back in love with 
like 90s hip hop, not just appreciating the song, but appreciating the craft that went behind the song. And I was like, oh, shit, samples are cool. So there is I think there's basically born out of the litigious aspect of sampling that really came up as a result of some incredible records from the late 80s and that mindset continuing on into the 90s. But unfortunately, people getting a little bit better at being like, oh, I think that's the baseline from 1967 Ukrainian funk jam, something, you know, like someone was like, oh, I can sue. I think people started being like, if all people want is some really cool funk sounding stuff or some really cool electronic sounding stuff, we can make that and we can make people's mm -hmm. lives super easy. So I love using this stuff because I'm on no label whatsoever. I do not see a major label in my yes. future. We are manifesting. Yes. Capitol Records is going to somehow hear this and us talking about Paul's Boutique. Then they're going to go to the show notes and be like, oh, there's the link to this guy's music. And then they're going to listen and you're going to get on Capitol Records. And uh, we are moving into L.A. The only <laughs> there's only one person I really want to hear my music and want to do something with it. And it's going to be a little bit of a little bit of an admission here. It's going to be Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae Jepsen, are you listening? I want to produce one of your albums one day, Carly Rae Jepsen. I think you I are. Lars does have, Lars does love Carly Rae Jepsen music. Like I will be upstairs in the office working and Lars will be downstairs with the dogs blasting Carly Rae Jepsen, singing and dancing with them. I'm not even lying. Say, it's, no, the singing and the dancing the is dance very important. Party. Now we're manifesting. That's the manifestation manifest of this episode is you will be producing an album for Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> that would be really cool. Or just co-writing a couple of songs. That would be really dope. I just know one song. Carly, Carly. Just Carly. one song. Hello. I got a couple. I got a couple I think you would do really yeah. great on. But also if, if you're sitting there and the only thing you've heard is Call Me Maybe. One, that song is dope and stop trashing it. And two, oh my God, Emotion is an incredible album. It is. It is really good. I remember um, the first time that you were like, oh, my gosh, this new Carly Rae Jepsen album is good. And I'm like, huh? What? And yeah, I've definitely heard it plenty of times, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. And and for the few of you out there that are still like, oh, I'm not sold. Indie rock legend Devante Hines mm -hmm. from Testicles and Blood Orange has worked many times with Carly Rae Jepsen. And I think there is a reason. All right, we just went on a side quest, as I love doing. I love a good side quest on this podcast. Okay, so these websites that you like to use when you do sampling, mm -hmm. are these people just, like, nice and, like, they're having fun and they're, like, putting their samples on this website in hopes that maybe somebody would use it and then maybe they would get paid for it one day? Or are they hired by this website and get paid for it? Or, like, is it a subscription? To read word for word from the polyphonic music library to give you an idea of, of what these people creating samples are kind of looking for. If you place a record on a major label and that's in capitals using the samples, you will split the publishing with the person who written the sample pack and co-production credit fair split on upfront producer fee where applicable. There'll be no sample clearing hassles at all. If the samples are used on any non-major label that again, they did non-major label in capital letters, any non-major label platforms. You could do anything you'd like with it. Upload it to SoundCloud, sell the beat to an indie artist, include it on a beat tape, et cetera, et cetera. So basically every sample pack typically costs something. Okay. Um, okay. It can cost as little as five bucks. Mm. There are ones that are as expensive as 50 bucks, especially if you, I don't want to get too into the weeds with music production stuff, but um, you can get the compositions and also the stems and stems is a nice way of saying each individual track on its own. Mm. So the okay. composition is everything all together. But if you get the stems, you also get the vocal thing all on its own, the bass all on its mm. own, or you just get one stem that is the drums. And I have definitely done that, especially with some of the great stuff that's on Polyphonic Music Library, basically they get paid even if these samples never go anywhere. If every person like me just want a really cool soundscape or some of them are as specific as stand-up jazz bass, and that's all you're getting is you're mm -hmm. getting a bunch of really cool stand-up jazz bass elements. 
Um, okay, now or... do your best impression of a stand-up jazz bass. Oh, he did it. Oh, anyway. Oh, that was really good. It's awesome. In the same way that we were talking about using AI art to get inspired by something. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely sometimes love using samples because it's going to put me in a musical key I haven't used before. It's going to put mm. me in a a beats per minute range that I'm not really used to. And sometimes when I'm stuck on a certain musical thing that I'm just like, I've already done three or four songs like this. I don't need to keep going in this yeah. like very similar vein. It's a really good way of of pushing you out. But also I love it's Yeah, again, if not if when Carly Rae Jepsen calls me and says, mm-hmm. dude, yep. everything you do is dope. Let's work on an album together. I know I can go to this and it's going to be totally fair at the end of the day. Those people yeah. get a, a writing credit and they'll get paid and mm-hmm. there's not going to be any clearance hassles. We're mm-hmm. not going to be waiting a year or two from their label to, to find out that they're absolutely totally fine with this app. Yeah. Which is, if you remember from the 33 and a third podcast with Dante talking about Paul's Boutique, like one of the big issues with getting samples used was the clearance. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you could be waiting, like the album was done and you're still sitting there like a year and a half, two years later waiting to get certain samples cleared. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes when record labels were like, you know what, we don't love this, but just put it out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how long can you have an album on the shelves? So going back to this industry, the websites that you utilize to pull samples, they specifically put it out there because it's not going to cause copyright issues. They Mm -hmm. want credit unless they are Mm -hmm. part of a major label, etc. How does that work with the AI art platforms that you played with for a little bit there do you so i know you pay a subscription but where does that money go to does it go to the company i'm assuming it goes straight to up the uh the capitalist ladder to the top yeah. and that there's enough shareholders making money that they go you want a second or yeah. fourth or tenth round of funding absolutely i'm sunbathing on two yachts right now i parked them side yeah. by side so i could just lay across them both <laughs> so i think if AI art went from, I, I honestly, the entire sampling model as it is, where if mm-hmm. I want to use a Mariah Carey sample, I need to get whoever owns the copyright to that Mariah Carey song. And obviously there's been a lot of Swifties out there will, will recognize this argument and why Taylor's been re-recording some of her music so that she mm-hmm. owns the copyright. And that this is the reason. Because if I want to use a Taylor Swift sample, it's much better for Taylor Swift if I'm using the version that she owns the copyright of than the person that owns the previous one. But yeah, so whoever owns the copyright to a Mariah Carey song, I would pay them for that 10 second sample. Or I'd go to somebody like MSXII or Polyphonic or The Drum Broker, and there's tons of great shit on there. Mm -hmm. Either way, I think AI art could benefit from that if the basquiat family trust or I, i'm i'm blanking on the the name that looks after john michelle basquiat stuff now and they're obvious there's john michelle basquiat playing cards enamel buttons mm-hmm. this family has shown that they are willing to partner with a lot of people to allow basquiat's work to be used in a variety of formats it's very different if i went into mid-journey and typed in like 1980s new york street art stuff and i got something but if i'm going into mm-hmm. mid-journey and typing in john michelle basquiat his family should be getting some of that money or john michelle basquiat's family should partner with somebody who would be doing samples or or samples kind of like polyphonic or doing mm-hmm. like msxii are doing if they're going to make these little sample packs of art cool because the yeah. family's still making money from these people making it and also it's cool because then you could buy that sample pack to make some social media content. Mm-hmm. And as long as you aren't Apple, they don't care. But if once you, you know, once you stop being like a small startup, they're like, mm-hmm. hey, we would really love if you copied us and you copied the John Michelle Basquiat Family Trust and said you use this sample pack to create this stuff. I think that's a totally cool way to do it. But the way that AI art is doing it now. Yeah, I can go in and say Seattle skyline as drawn by John Michelle Basquiat. And mm-hmm. as far as I know, I could put that out in the world. 
And obviously people are going to be like, yeah, you ripped off Basquiat or you didn't draw that yourself. And But that's the only real negative. If you were to sell that for whatever reason, not only did you only type in a sentence and yes. this whole piece of art came up and you're getting money from that, but the artist itself is not getting anything. And I think that, yeah, well, you're right. Or Having these like packs or some way of tracking how AIR is being generated through what is being typed in and a trace on that to see where it goes after that. And if somebody is making money off of it, like being able to track it back. There should be an opt-in, opt-out model. Yeah. Um, and not just for major heavyweight artists that everyone mm -hmm. knows. But I think, yeah, I think there are a ton of incredible artists working today that might say, absolutely, opt me mm -hmm. in. Here are 30 of my images, high resolution scans. Here are some sketches, like whatever the AI generating people need, art generating people need, they would absolutely opt in. And if mm -hmm. they got... Because they're I able to control the narrative, right? They're able to say, these are the images I want to use. Yes. And if somebody types in my name while creating art, I will get compensation if they are selling this. Right? Absolutely. And, and mm -hmm. I think, and I don't think that would have been an ugly way to do it. And honestly, it'd be cool to almost get like a receipt after you'd made like an AI image, if I was like, hey, I want a beautiful minimalist drawing of the Grand Canyon on a snowy winter day. Mm -hmm. And if it told me like the 18 artists it borrowed from to create this yeah. image, I might find 18 new artists that I absolutely love. I might find 18 new artists that maybe some of their works are way out of my price range, but some of them might be selling stuff for 100, 200, 300 bucks. I love that aspect of how that how you just turned that if these companies that are creating these AI art platforms are truly doing it for anything except for putting money in their own pockets. Yes, it should look like this, right? Or a version of this, the discovery piece of this would be so exciting. Yes. And it should be I think that, that should be something that's baked into AI art or baked mm -hmm. into art generation in general. And, and it could work across so many different platforms. If I typed in, I want a cool logo for a company I'm starting. And I want it to be like minimalist and black on white and stuff. And if it showed me a bunch of designers, like mm -hmm. maybe I, at that point, I start to look through some of these designers and go, huh, actually, this guy's in my price range. Yeah. Or this woman is doing some really cool stuff. I'm going to send her an email. And say, hey, mm -hmm. I'm starting XYZ company. Yeah. I have XYZ budget. Would we be able to work together? I mean, that's the thing is, yeah, of course, you could fall back on the AI art, knowing that these designers who have opted in and have put their designs in mm -hmm. to the system are going to get something. Mm -hmm. And could it possibly be as ugly as the Spotify thing, where it's a lot yeah. of artists are upset because they're getting pennies on the dollar compared to what they could be getting? But yeah. it, 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 that's a different argument because right now nobody's getting compensated. And I'm not saying that minimal compensation is better than no compensation, but... It, that's a whole nother can of worms that we could be opening right now. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is AI is opening so many cans of worms all at once, just existing. Why is it, quote unquote, okay for somebody to type into an AI art platform, create an image of a boat at sea in the style of Kyler Marx? And that artist is being referred to as the likeness, but isn't compensated. There's a bunch of musicians that have been sued for plagiarism in the past. I'm just curious if like AI art platforms, which way they're going to go. So we have two examples here in this specific idea of which way these AI platforms will go. The first one is the song Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down and Sam Smith's Stay With Me. From this BuzzFeed article by William Barrios talking about musicians who were sued for plagiarism, Petty believed that Smith was not being outright deceitful by copying the song, chalking it up to a case of subconscious plagiarism. So remaining civil, the issue was never brought to trial. And basically, Petty and Lynn were given a 12.5% songwriting credit for Sam Smith's Stay With Me. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little bit about this yesterday when we were preparing for this podcast. The Hollies did the same thing with Radiohead and Creep. They sued them 
but all they really wanted was songwriting credit and they have the songwriting credit if you look up the songwriting credits for radiohead's creep there's some people Mm -hmm. that are not in radiohead credited there and that's where it it came and went and honestly i believe that's one of the reasons why radiohead changed direction i think tom york was like this was not intentional we're more than a single that we got sued by the hollies and they ended up doing the bends which is hands down one of the best albums of the 90s i i think the hollies i think tom petty did these kinds of way too much likeness lawsuits the right way they Mm -hmm. wanted songwriting credit and they wanted a comparatively small portion of the royalties Mm mm-hmm I guess the the question is, will AI art go in the way of where the artist is at least credited or will it go the way of the Marvin Gaye versus Robin Thicke case? So it's, again, from this BuzzFeed article, perhaps the most famous case of music copyright infringement in recent memory. Heirs of Marvin Gaye sued Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams for plagiarizing Gaye's got to give it up in their song Blurred Lines. In 2015, Gay's heirs won $7.4 million in that case, and it was eventually lowered to 5.3. But will it eventually go the way where the artist gets paid for their work? I do think when we were listening last night, it felt a little closer, and I can definitely understand why maybe Marvin Gaye's estate was like, yo, this sucks. As we were talking about last night, how many chord progressions are there really? There's not a lot. There's a finite number, especially in pop music. And I hate saying it to you, but a lot of punk music, post-punk music, IDM, EDM, all this stuff is still a pop music spine. Yeah, There's only so many beats and guitar solos and... Wheelie, wheelie, wheelie. I'm trying to help with the sound effects. I think the difference between these, though, is these are humans going yes. and making art. And well, maybe and also they heard something. Yes. Yes. And maybe they heard something and were inspired, whether it was conscious or subconscious. And then the the AI and art part is mostly a machine creating something, but a human is deciding on what it looks like. It's computer and machine generated the intent should be even easier with the ai side what i'm saying is there is at least potential deniability that they remembered that it was got to give it up that they were thinking of Mm -hmm. there's a chance they wrote this and said this sounds like marvin Gaye, but it doesn't sound like it's ripping marvin Gaye off or this sounds like Mm -hmm. motown but it doesn't sound like we're ripping a particular artist off i can at Mm -hmm. least give them some benefit of the doubt but if i type into an ai music generating software give me a cool groovy opening like got to give it up by marvin gay that's that gives my intentions away the same way Mm -hmm. that when i type in give me a a seattle skyline as drawn by john michelle basquiat or or keith herring or my intentions are very clear And I think that's the thing that does concern me a little bit is Tom gave the benefit of the doubt that Sam didn't grow up in the Tom Petty being on every radio station ever era, didn't know that song. I think that's dope of Tom Petty. I think that's very Mm -hmm. empathetic. But But again, if you went, if you found out that Sam had typed into an AI music creating software, give me a cool Tom Petty jam. That's yeah. very obvious, the intent. I think, unfortunately, it's it's the move fast, break stuff, and they're waiting for the litigation that follows. And I think that's where I am hoping that there will be more Margarets in this space, yes. making sure that technology can be used for good in many ways, and it should be used for good in many ways. And I am hoping that this capitalistic society that we live in can be removed from something like this. And I'm like running through a field of daisies right now. And that that sentence that I just said is like the least realistic thing I've said in the last week. But (laughs) if we can have more AI ethics scientists 
within these companies that are utilizing this technology, I'm hoping that moving forward, the artist will get the compensation. I'm hoping moving forward that the technologies of AI will be used to create things to give back to humans versus taking away from humans. I hope that AI is used to lift people up and not to tear them down or take away the thing that they love to do, right? I think art and making creates a beautiful ethical society and an empathetic society and a society where we're all connected. I think apps like making show that community is possible and not only possible, it's happening. But I think that those kind of inroads need to be made further through society because at the end of the day, the machine doesn't have biases and the, the machine doesn't have prejudices. The, the, the machine has the biases and the prejudices of the people that created it. Our friend Josh Fulman asked the question, like, what problem are some of these AI generated artistic creative things actually solving? Do we need less artists in the world? Do we need less writers in the world? And I, I would say no. Yeah. I think it goes back to the tweet we started this podcast with. If AI is going to play a very fundamental part in the development of humanity going forward, it should be freeing up time for people to be doing the things they love. And some of that will be more time for a father with their kids. For some people, mm -hmm. it's going to be more time taking walks, more hikes, more road trips. And for some people, it's going to be more art. Let's talk about what you're working on right now. Lars, what is the creativity in your life? I've been really looking at finishing up this next Despatches record, getting the older Despatches records up on all the streaming platforms. I'm drawing a lot more recently, I think, as some of you on the Making app have seen. Also, you're going to be doing some stuff for Bright Collective coming up too. I'm hoping to clear out the garage so I can get my, my painting space back. There was a wonderful, positive moment of creativity with like art that I would love to just keep uh, tapping into as long as I can since sometimes it comes in tides and I feel like mm -hmm. we're at high tide of creativity right now and I'd like to enjoy that as much as possible. I, I can definitely tell when your creative tides are coming and going and right now we're in it folks we're in a we're in a high tide it's been pretty fun to see and to hear. I am about to start the gusset on the first sock that I'm working on. I'm working with Beautiful Yarn from Farmer Starter Fibers, the Daily Socks by Summer Lee Knits. The garden is still thriving. We do not have a single tomato or pepper. However, I believe the spinach will soon be available for harvesting. So get ready, Lars, for a spinach salad because it's coming. I love nothing more than leafy greens. <laughs> I also was really happy to join the last Bright Collective Art Hour. We had Christine Wilkins join us as a teacher and had an instruction of putting pen to paper and learning how to do continuous line drawing. The interesting part of that is the exercise that she started us with was a don't look at your drawing, continuous line drawing. And I was so shocked how much I enjoyed it and really liked what it looked like. Well, Lars, the complicated discussion and world of AI and art, I think that it will be interesting to see how things evolve. If there are any big updates, maybe we can come back and chat more. But in the meantime, let's leave these things to Margaret and the other AI ethics scientists in this world. While you're at it, everyone go support your favorite artist and go buy a piece and make sure that we are continuing to give love to the people who could possibly be affected by this. Because I think that not only is it the company's duty to create things that are ethically made, it's also our duty as people who enjoy art and beauty in this world to give back to those who create that for us. I also want to talk about how good our babies have been. I've been yeah, very proud. Been there have, there have has to not been a bark. Them. I know. Oh, oh, All right. Passed out. 
cute. To join the amazing community of makers in the making app, head to themakingapp.com to download and sign up or head to your favorite app store and search making. You can listen to the Making Conversation podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, we'd love for you to subscribe and share with your friends. But also, did you know that you can listen to the Making Conversation podcast in the Making app? Open up the Making app and click Discover. Scroll down to Podcasts and you'll see all current and past podcasts listed there. You can listen while you scroll the feed, post details in a project, search through the marketplace, or even just have it out while you're working on your favorite whip. If you've made it this far and you're interested in sponsoring Making Conversation, send us a note at hq at makingco.com and we'll be in touch. As always, thanks for listening and we'll see you in the Making app.